As I said earlier, it was June 19, 1865, when Major General Gordon Granger rode into Galveston, Texas, with Union troops. General Robert E. Lee had surrendered at the Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia two months earlier, officially ending the Civil War. But news had not yet reached Texas. In fact, there were many folks who were pro-slavery who had fled to Texas on the assumption that that territory was sort of beyond the reach of the Civil War. News had not reached some 250,000 enslaved black people. So on June 19, 1865, Major Granger announced to those enslaved people in Galveston that they were free. He read to them Field Order Number 3, which said in part, the people of Texas are informed that in, in accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves, and the connection heretofore existing between them becomes that between employer and hired laborer. Among the many things that Juneteenth teaches us, one is this. It's possible to be declared free without, in fact, living free. Sometimes the status of freedom and the reality of freedom take a while to align. That's the case, was the case with slavery's end in America. That was the case with the status and the reality of freedom in ancient Israel. God freed Israel in the Exodus, but Israel was a long way from understanding how to live free. The Israelites who crossed the Red Sea had only known bondage. Now they were on the verge of becoming a new and independent and free nation. They were on the verge of having to interact with other cultures, other nations surrounding them. And the question becomes, what kind of society would they build? As formerly enslaved persons, how would they protect and promote freedom? Try putting yourself in their sandals. Imagine what it would have been like to have crossed the Red Sea just some few days after escaping bondage in Egypt, God doing that miracle, you're standing together with the whole of the nation, wearing the clothes that you fled in, with a leader who, God's man, had never led before. Talking about being a nation. Kind of society would you create? How would your creation compare to God's creation? What we're seeing in the book of Leviticus, particularly from chapter 17 on, is God's instruction to his people really about the kind of society they should build, about the kind of ethical standard that they should maintain. Chapters 1 to 16 were really about uh, worship and uh, all the things that go into sacrifices and the cookout that God wants to have with his people. Now, in chapter 17, and particularly in chapter 25, we're getting instruction on the society that they should build. If you had no taking type this morning, here's our sermon outline for the morning. God desires his people to live in a society that features three things. God desires his people to live in a society 
that features three things. Rest, returns, and redemption. A society that is full of rest, that is open to returns, and where people and property are redeemed. That's what we see as we work our way through Leviticus chapter 25. Let's start with that first point. God desires a society that features rest. The first 12 verses of Leviticus chapter 25 includes really two forms of rest in this new nation. The first there is that Sabbath for the land in verses 1 to 7. Um, They could for six years plow and prune and gather, verse 3, but in the seventh year, the land itself needed a rest, a Sabbath of solemn rest, verse 4. And, and God promised in verses 6 to 7 that he was so blessed the sixth year that the sixth year would produce enough crops, produce enough food to cover both the sixth year and the seventh year into the eighth year. So everyone would eat. Some of us grew up, grew up like that. If one eat, all eat, right? So everyone's going to eat, no matter their status in verses 6 and 7, whether they are enslaved or free, whether they are hired servant or immigrant, um, whether they are human or animal, everyone's going to eat. God is going to provide. But it's striking, isn't it? Not only do people need rest, but so does the land. The earth grows tired, too. The earth gets weary, too. It supports human life in all kinds of ways that we never think of, right? You don't, you don't necessarily think about when you place your next step down that the earth is going to hold you up, do you? But it does. And we don't give a whole lot of thought, no longer being in a farming society, most of us, as to where our food comes from. We go to a grocery store to get it. But somewhere there are farmers who are farming lands waiting on crops that the earth produces. But the earth, but we think of it as permanent and strong, needs a Sabbath. That's the first Sabbath we see there in verses 1 to 7. Then in 8 to 12, there's a second Sabbath, the, the Sabbath of Jubilee. Every 50 years, during the 50th year, the people of Israel were to celebrate Jubilee. Verse, t- verse 9, it begins on the Day of Atonement, the holiest day in the Israelite calendar, where all of the people declare special solemn, they afflict themselves for their sins, uh, and they make a sacrifice. And that sacrifice um, is a sacrifice that, that atones for their sins, all of their sins, for the entire year. So they would gather on that 50th year, following that seventh year of seven, they would announce the year of Jubilee. Notice there, verse 10 says, they would consecrate that day or set it aside as holy. They would set aside that entire year, excuse me, as holy. And they would read a proclamation of liberty. Not, not unlike the Emancipation Proclamation, not unlike Field Order Number 3, read on Juneteenth. They would make a proclamation of liberty to all the inhabitants of the land. You might think of it as a holy Juneteenth year. And according to verses 11 to 12, the entire year they were to avoid working in the fields. They could not sow or reap because of Jubilee. But just like he did with the Sabbath for the land, God promises that even though they're not working, he's going to provide for them. 
verse 18 commands them to keep his statutes and rules. And then notice how he anticipates um, their objections. Verse 19, uh, God promises the land will yield its fruit and you eat your fill and dwell in it securely. Now, obviously, not working for a whole year. That raises some questions, right? But what are we going to eat? How are we, we going to pay our bills, right? And it also raises something of our spiritual condition, whether we are believing in God or struggling with unbelief, whether we are hesitant or willing to walk forward in faith. That's why God addresses them in verses 20 to 22. Look here with me real quick. Notice what the Lord says to Israel. He says, and if you say, it's God's way of saying, I know what you're thinking. What shall we eat in the seventh year if we may not sow or gather in our crop? I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat the old until the ninth year when its crop arrives. Now, what I love about those three verses is not just God's promise of abundance, but I love the fact that God knows our frame, how we're made, that we're weak, that we're but dust. And rather than just give his people a command that he knows that they might find challenging, how he speaks in his word to comfort them, how he knows them, how he cares for them. And that's what we find in God's word, his comfort, his care, his promises, his anticipation of our questions, and his assurances that he's going to be on the job. He is God. He does not fail. He does not quit. He provides for his people. In exchange for trusting God and resting, God promised them food and safety for three years. I wish I could get a year off with a three-year guarantee of all I need. That's a good deal. I'll take that. But think for a moment. Think for a moment about how many Sabbaths are described in Leviticus. We get the weekly Sabbath of every seven days. We get the annual special day Sabbaths, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Trumpets, um, the Passover. Then we get the annual special Sabbath weeks right? The Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Booths. Now we're reading in Leviticus 25, every seven years, there's a Sabbath year for the land. And every 50 years, there's a Sabbath of Jubilee. Beloved, do you know how much God wants you to rest? He wanted it for Israel so much that God filled their society with rest. Resting with the Lord and his people is a, is a central feature of spiritual life. The, the Sabbath was not an incidental thing or an accidental thing. In a real sense, Sabbath was the point of Israel's deliverance. They could rest from their labors and slavery. They could rest from their striving and rest with God. They had been treated harshly in Egypt. Life with a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph was crushing and bruising. They were making brick without straw. They were so oppressed that they called out to God and God heard them and sent them a deliverer. They were clawing and scratching out trying to eke out a life in Egypt under Pharaoh. It was exhausting and depleting. But life with God was meant to be the opposite. 
blessed. Now here's the tragedy with ancient Israel. The Bible says they never entered the rest that God desired for them. If you keep your finger in Leviticus chapter 25 and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3 looks back to this, this pe these people here in Leviticus chapter 25 and, and gives us God's commentary uh, on their life, on their history, on their situation. So in Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 16, this is what we read. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? That's all the people who were being addressed in Leviticus. And with whom was God provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Most fundamental thing blocking the rest that God has prepared for us and our entrance into that rest, Israel's entrance into that rest, is unbelief, not trusting God, not believing the good news of God. Israel did not believe God, so they disobeyed God. Israel did not believe in God because of their unbelief. They failed to enter God's true rest. And the real rest to which all these Sabbaths in Leviticus are, is pointing is the rest that Jesus gives, the rest we find in him. He, Jesus, is our true Sabbath. So look just in the next chapter of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. The author gives us the punchline. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, you see, beloved, there's still the promise of rest. Let us fear, lest any of us now in the New Testament era, in today's world, let us fear, lest any of you just seem to have failed to reach it. For good news, that's gospel, good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Here it is, verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest. It's by faith in Jesus Christ that we enter the rest that God has promised his people. Not by the observance of special days and holidays, all of which are beautiful, but all of which are symbolic. The real rest comes when we turn from our sins and put our faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died for our sins, was crucified and buried, and on the third day, raised from the grave, who did all the work that we could not do to satisfy God's law so that we could rest from our works. Now let me show that to you in the Bible. Hebrews chapter 4, jump down to verses 8 and 11. It says, therefore, if Joshua, now he's talking about the generation after Moses, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then again, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Verse 10, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from him for his. Verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Beloved, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. I wonder what you think Christianity is. I wonder if you think it's a long list of 
do's and don'ts. If you think it's kind of a a moral self-help program for weak people. I wonder if you think it's just something that particularly religious people and prudish people kind of get excited about, but other people shouldn't. If you think anything remotely like that, in love, I tell you, you, you don't understand Christianity. In fact, what Christianity is, as we've seen here in the Bible, is a promise of rest from all of that. Of rest from trying to be good enough. Of rest from striving in your own strength to reform your own life. It's rest from prudishness and it's entrance into joy, a restful joy. What God offers you when he tells you to come and believe in his son Jesus and to follow his son Jesus is not hardship, though it will be hard in some ways. What he offers you is rest and everlasting Sabbath that you get to enjoy with God, starting now and never ending. A life of peace, of tranquility, of calm, of goodness. Now I ask you, is there anyone in this world offering you that? And is there anyone in this world, if they offered you that, who could actually deliver it? Only Jesus can. He's our Sabbath. He's our rest. And we would invite you to enter into that rest through faith in him. If you want to know more about what that looks like, we'd love to talk with you after the service and and help you understand more of what it means to to rest with God through faith in Jesus. That's really what salvation is on a basic level. And Christian, we, we too should have entered this rest and we should be enjoying this rest As a result of that salvation and entering God's true rest, we who believe in Jesus can have practically every day a kind of resting posture and an experience of the the rest that he gives. Think about what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. You may have already thought about these verses. Where he says there, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, means you're weighed down. Come to me, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. How different Jesus is from Pharaoh. Pharaoh would crush. God's people, weigh them down with the burden of slavery. Jesus lifts the burden, makes it light, gives us rest. A lot of people are caught up in grind culture. Y'all out here with Nipsey Hussle singing, I've been grinding all my life, sacrifice, hustle paid a price. I'm saved, but I'm still in the world now. <laughs> this grind culture is something else out here, y'all. And we grinding, but God is like, y'all need to sit down somewhere and rest. Rest is holy. Rest is a spiritual act of faith. When we Sabbath, we say to God, 
we trust you. When we stop working to rest, we say to God, we believe you got us. When we rest, we say to God, we are merely creatures with limits, but you are the God who creates and is unlimited. See, rest claims the promise that God will provide just as he said. When we rest, we declare it's not really our work that is supplying our need. It is God who is supplying our need. So my question for you this morning is, how well are you resting? Both in Jesus and from your word. Are you eating the bread of anxious toil? Or are you resting? I pray that God would give us grace to more and more enjoy this sweet rest that he gives us in Jesus. We've got to keep moving. God desires a society full of rest. But number two, God desires a society that is open to returns. That's open to returns. What are we talking about there? There's a cliche that says you cannot go home again. That cliche comes from the title of a book by a writer named Thomas Wolfe. It means if you try to go home again, someplace in your past, it, it won't be the same when you go back. In that sense, you can't go home again, the world says. In the same way, there's some retail stores that have a no-return policy. I don't like those places. I'm suspicious of those places. I feel like if I shop there, I'm going to buy something that, that is going to be cheap and raggedy, and they ain't going to stand behind their product, right? Somebody out there trying to make a quick buck. There's something in the human heart that wants to go home. There's something in the human heart that wants a fair deal and a return policy when we don't get one. This chapter is about Jubilee, and Jubilee is all about returning home and a fair deal. We see two types of returns in verses 13 to 34. Number one, we see a return to property. It's in verses 13 to 17, a return to the ancestral homeland. Verse 13 says, in this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. They're to go back to their, their hometowns. They're to go back to their homelands. And when they return to their property, they can't be cheated or wronged by other Israelites. Notice there, the buyer can't cheat the seller, verses 14 through 16, and the seller can't cheat the buyer. The idea is stated twice in those three verses. Basically, no one can overcharge or undercharge, not in God's society. The cost will be prorated by the number of years of crops that have been gotten in that period. Verse 16 says, if the years are many, you shall increase the price. If the years are few, you shall reduce the price. God here is calling them to deal fairly with each other as they return to their property. But now secondly, there is a return of property. So there's a return to property and a return of property in verses 23 to 24. What good would it be to go back home and be unable to get your property back. You could have stayed homeless in that city you moved to, rather than go back home and be homeless. Verse 25 imagines an Israelite who becomes poor, and because of their poverty, had to sell off all of their property. Now, when the year of Jubilee comes, God wants them to be able to regain their property. And since they are poor, the law allows a close kinsman to redeem the poor person's property. You see that in verse 25? Now, if a person doesn't have a kinsman who can redeem the property, verse 26, 
they can buy the property themselves if they, if they come into a windfall, gain some money. Again, the cost of the property is, is prorated based upon the number of years left to the year of Jubilee. If he can't buy it back, then that property remains in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee, then in Jubilee, all property is returned to the original owners. This applies not only to land property, but also to houses. If you lived in a walled city, notice beginning in verse 29, you had one year to redeem your property. If you didn't buy it back, then that house would forever belong to the person who you sold it to in the first place. But if your house was in an area without walls, out in the villages, that house and that area could be redeemed and had to be returned, verse 31, in the year of Jubilee. The priests or the Levites, verse 32 to 34, well, they always had opportunity to buy back their homes and their lands because they didn't have an inheritance with the rest of Israel. There were certain Levite cities that belonged to them. That was their due um, because God was their inheritance rather than the land. And so God has structured society in such a way that people can return to property and have the return of their property guaranteed. The law took into account that a person could fall on hard times and might have to sell things to survive. What we're reading here is something of a social safety net of ancient Israel. But the law also recognized that perpetual poverty, perpetual poverty was not ideal for God's people. Everyone in God's society was to have their own vine and fig tree. So God's law provided a way out of poverty for everyone. But now at the deepest level, the return to property and the return of property was an expression not of human ownership, but of God's ownership, of God's ownership and God's greatness. So look at verse 17. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God or reverence your God, for I am the Lord your God. So all their business dealings with each other was to be done quorum Deo, before the face of God, remembering that God was watching and that God is holy and God's not to be trifled with. He's to be respected and honored and glorified among his people. And so if your brother came home looking to redeem his property, you, you couldn't be playing no games now. The money couldn't be funny. They were to remember that God was real and God was really watching and that they owed something to God in terms of reverence. A few centuries later, King Solomon would write something like this, or would write this, Proverbs 14, 31, whoever oppresses a man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. I think that's the spirit of these laws here about returning to property. Verses 23 and 24. Notice there, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity. Why? God says, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners, notice, with me. And in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. They were not to form a permanent attachment to a temporary possession. Y'all missed that. Somebody need that today. They were not to form a permanent attachment to a temporary possession. The land belonged to God. He created it. He gave it to them. Better yet, God loaned it to them. They were passing through this world. 
And so even in the promised land, that wasn't finally their home. Notice he says, you are strangers and sojourners with me. You realize God was an immigrant too. He prepared another world for his people. That's what they were journeying into. That's for the Israelites were exiles and strangers, pilgrims and sojourners in this world, passing through to another country whose builder and maker was God. Their ownership was only petty ownership. It was junior ownership. They were stewards. But the land was theirs, or it was God's. And God said, allow redemption. See, ultimately, every, everybody and everything is being returned. And this has implications, I think, for us as a church today. The inability to end poverty only occurs because of an unwillingness to return or redistribute property. God created the world with incredible resources. The world may need a rest, but the world ain't never broke. This creation is rich. I mean, God can make the land feed people for three years without them planting anything. We don't live in a scarcity. We actually live in abundance, beloved. But because humanity has a scarcity mindset and capitalism fosters the idea that we permanently own things rather than God, then we, we tend to hold on to stuff rather than redistribute it. Now, this chapter is not calling for an unfair redistribution. After all, most of the chapter is about redeeming things that belong to you and belong to your ancestor. There is a legitimate private ownership in this chapter. But the chapter, while it protects private ownership, it also commands jubilee, where ownership gets redistributed to all the people. There's a New Testament principle, an example, I think, that seems to capture the spirit of jubilee. We're not, we don't have a jubilee in the New Testament as such, but I think the spirit of it you can find in Acts chapter 4. If you want to keep your finger in Leviticus 25, I think it would be worth it to turn with me to, or scroll with me to Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32. Acts chapter 4, verse 32 says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were given their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Then we get an example of it, verse 36. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, I don't think Acts chapter 4 is a command requiring all Christians to sell their houses and give to the church. Acts 4 is a section of history. It's, a, it's, it's narrating what actually happened as revival broke out in the early church. But I do think Acts 4 provides some healthy challenges for us. 
let me put it to you in a couple of ways. It challenges, verse 32, whether we think any of the things we have belong to us or is our own. Is that how we've been thinking of our possessions? Like those seagulls in Finding Nemo? Mine, mine, mine. Like a two-year-old toddler fighting for a toy, mine. I hope not, because they're not. Everything we have belongs to God, beloved. Here's the second challenge. It challenges whether we see ourselves as a church family having everything in common. Or, or is it, you know, survival of the fittest? Are we, are we making sure that we, we share? Really, you can boil the entire economic philosophy of the Bible down to one word, share. Are we sharers? In Acts 4, 34 and 35, challenge us about whether our dream as a church is the American dream or whether it's a dream where there is not a needy person among them. What are we dreaming about? Marble countertops? Waterfall islands? What's that big old sink you like, baby? The farmhouse sink? I like it too. I ain't picking on it. It's, like, it's a nice sink. If you got one, you got a dope crib. That's all right. Dreaming about white houses and picket fences and two and a half kids and Living out in some place where you just can't see your neighbor or hear your neighbor because you're tired of your neighbor. But we're dreaming about, through God's grace, as this text says, and the freedom that God gives, are we dreaming about the kind of sharing that means everybody in the membership of this church has their needs met? And if we can do that in God's churches, it's the only place where the, the Bible really calls us to do it. But if we, if we could do that in God's churches, what salt and light would we be in the world? What answers would we have for the world and the effects of poverty in the world? So I, I, we are called to return. We are a society where returns are possible, possible and returns are plentiful, where we can go and get property and where we can share that property, where people have a ladder out of poverty and a ladder to flourishing. Well, we should keep moving. God wants this society to be a society of rest. He wants this to be a society of, of returns. And number three, a society of redemption. You see that in verses 35 to 55. In these verses, we find really four situations where redemption now, not of property, but redemption of persons may be necessary. Verses 35 and 38 through 38 give us the first situation. See that in verse 35. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Now, I know many of us are backing up right now. Live with me. That rascal. See, this fellow Israelite needs redemption from his poverty. So he's poor. He obviously doesn't have enough to, to take care of himself. So the responsibility, notice now, falls on his Israelite brother. 
the laws of hospitality that would have been shown to strangers and sojourners now are extended to the relative. What would it look like for God's people to be kind to strangers but ignore their family? So at least do what you would do with the stranger among you in terms of hospitality. And this is to be real generosity. It's not a situation where an Israelite was to profit from this, profit from another person's poverty. Notice there in verses um, 36 to 37, God forbids um, charging interest. He forbids giving food or selling food for profit. This is meant to be um, genuine generosity. And again, they're to do this, verse 36, in the fear of the Lord. Because they love and respect God. Then remember that the same God who brought them out of bondage in Egypt is the one who brought them in the land of Canaan. And that they're drinking from wells that they did not dig and living in houses that they did not build. So that same generosity that God has shown them in, in their sort of uh, prosperity, they are also to show to their brother or sister Israelite in their poverty. And in that way, redeem them from poverty. They were rescued free of charge. Now they're to be rescuers, offering it free of charge. That's the first situation. Second situation is this. An Israelite sells himself to another Israelite, verses 39 to 46. The Israelite becomes poor. Says, how am I going to deal with my poverty? Uh, well, I don't have family that I can go and, and live with. And the family take their obligation to, to care for me. So biblically, uh, as we've seen before in 1 Timothy and other places, the family is the safety net in the Bible, right? And so, but I don't have a family. That doesn't, that doesn't happen for me. What do I do? And so one option, verse 39, is he sells himself into slavery to another Israelite that he's not related to. Now, in the ancient world and in some parts of the world today, this was, this was a common practice. It's one way of settling your debts. But if one Israelite sold themselves to another Israelite, notice now, they were not to be considered or treated as slaves, verse 40. He was to be a hired servant and as a sojourner. And he was to be released in the year of Jubilee, verse 41. Him and his entire family were to be released and to go back to their ancestral property and possessions. And verse 42, they were to be released because they were truly God's servants, not man's. God had brought them out of Egypt, and so every Israelite belonged to God, not to other Israelites, not to other people, and could not be treated harshly. That's the second situation. Here's the third situation. So that was an Israelite selling himself to an Israelite. Now we have an Israelite buying a Gentile. So then verses 44 to 46. Verses 44 and 45 give them permission to buy slaves from among the nations around them or from among the nations, the Gentiles, who were living in Israel. In the case of enslaved Gentiles, the people, verse 45, were considered property. They were slaves who could be passed down through the family as property. We'll come back to that in a moment. And here's the fourth situation. Now it's not an Israelite buying a Gentile. It's a Gentile buying an Israelite in verses 47 to 55. That's the final situation. Some Gentile has gotten rich in Israel, and in their wealth, 
they purchase an Israelite who has become poor. So it's not only possible for Israelites to own Gentiles, but also possible for Gentiles to own Israelites. But while Gentiles could be owned forever, Israelites were allowed to be redeemed. Again, a kinsman could come by and redeem it. Could be a brother, could be an uncle, could be a cousin, could be any close family member. They had a, a, an opportunity and, in fact, a responsibility to redeem their family member from slavery and to redeem their property that had been sold. And so while owned by a Gentile, the Israelite was to be treated as a hired servant. Could not be treated harshly, verse 53. It's clear that the enslaved Israelite, even though he was enslaved, could own property and build wealth. See verse 49? Verse 49 says, or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. Now, whether he grows rich or not, whether a kinsman redeems him or not, verse 54 says that in the year of Jubilee, he must go free. The reason for that, once again, is that the Israelite belongs to God, not man. Verse 55, for it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. God does not deliver his people from slavery, only to have them enslaved again. That's true of Israel. That's true of the Christian and their enslavement to sin. God does not deliver us from slavery to sin, only to have sin become our master again. This is why he says, yield not your members to unrighteousness, but to righteousness, Romans 6. Now, you might be like me. All this talk of slavery, the day before Juneteenth, uh, we need to make some careful observations. There were Christians who looked at passages like this to justify race-based chattel slavery during the transatlantic slave trade. But how does Leviticus and what we see here compare to the practice of slavery in the so-called New World, in the Americas? There's some similarities and there's some differences. Where similarities are concerned, uh, both systems regarded slaves as property, at least in some cases in Israel. That was the case with the Gentiles enslaved in Israel it was the case of all enslaved African Americans in America. There's another similarity. Both, both systems allowed people to be enslaved forever and rights to them as property passed down to descendants. Again, that was the case with enslaved Gentiles in Israel and all enslaved Africans in America. But the differences were pretty significant. Let me list about five or six of them. Most of Leviticus, of what Leviticus 25 describes in terms of enslavement is voluntary. It's voluntary slavery due to the enslaved person's poverty. The American system was forced slavery due to the enslaver's greed. Massively different motivations. Number two, voluntary enslavement was how one paid off debt in Leviticus 25, but forced slavery in America was how one was pushed into poverty and debt in the American chattel system. In Leviticus 25, you can end up a slave whether you were an Israelite or a Gentile, but in America, slavery was race-based, and after a few years, early years, only African people were enslaved. 
In Leviticus 25, those who sold themselves into slavery could own property or even grow rich, as the text says. That was rarely the case in American chattel slavery. In Leviticus 25, God commands Israel to recognize those who are brothers in the faith and to treat them well because of it. In the transatlantic slave trade, in American chattel slavery, there were laws passed explicitly because when, when, when enslaved Africans, through a miracle of God's grace, became Christians and adopted the religion of their slaveholders, slaveholders made laws that says, even if you're baptizing a Christian, that doesn't mean you go free. Still slave. Leviticus 25, God limits the ruthlessness of slavery. In American chattel slavery, ruthlessness was the rule of the day. What God is doing in Leviticus 25 is addressing a situation that already exists in the world and reforming it toward righteousness for his people. Slavery was older than Israel. It existed before Israel became a nation. It existed among all the peoples. It has, in fact, been an institution that existed around the world almost since the world began. But God now here is given a set of laws, given a set of instructions that is harnessing the evil of slavery, bending it to righteousness, bending it to equality, bending it to freedom. I could keep going, but maybe that's enough to distinguish slavery in the Bible from what happened in the transatlantic slave trade. Or maybe it's not. If we need to be clearer that God is not pro-slavery, let me give you three reasons why. God is not pro-slavery. The Bible's not pro-slavery. Number one, first, the year of Jubilee ends all enslavement of God's people. See, in God's society of redemption, slavery is limited and freedom is always coming. It's always coming. Secondly, the New Testament explicitly condemns the former slavery practice in America by calling it man-stealing in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, it says that man-stealing is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel, the glory of the blessed God. I don't know what you think about the possibility of slaveholders being Christians, but I can tell you the Christianity they practice is not the Christianity of the Bible. It's what Frederick Douglass, just down the street here, called slaveholding Christianity. And he said that religion is very different from the religion of his blessed Jesus. He could not have been more right. He could not have been more right. The New Testament, the gospel, condemns slavery. Here's number three, why we know God's not pro-slavery. The law of the kinsman redeemer is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, you may not know that term, but I bet you you know the concept. You probably know the most famous story of the kinsman redeemer in the Bible. It's in the book of Ruth. Naomi is an Israelite woman. Her and her husband moved to Moab, and in Moab, their three sons marry, and eventually her husband dies, and her three sons die, and two of the daughters who are Moabites go back to their people. But there's a third daughter, Ruth, who is a Moabite, who says, where you go, I go, and your God will be my God. And so they come back to Israel uh, fleeing a famine, but they are destitute. They are poor. They ain't got a plug nickel. And so, but they have, a, they have a, a person in the city named Boaz. And so Naomi tells Ruth, go out there. Ruth goes out to get some gleanings from the field. Remember the Leviticus required that you not pick all the crops, but you leave some for the poor. 
So Ruth goes out there, gets some gleanings from the field, and and uh, Naomi said, "Where you get that? Where you get this from?" And he says, "Oh, some field uh, owned by a guy named Boaz." And 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 uh, Naomi said, "Oh, that, that's kinfolk. We related. You you keep going to that field." And Boaz saw her, and Boaz was like, "Oh, she's cute." She told all the workers, "Don't mess with her. You leave her a big old plot over there. Let her pick all she wants." Right? Then Naomi gets clever. Says, this is what you do? You go into his tent at night and you you sleep at his feet. I'll, I ain't recommending this as dating, but dating advice, but that's what happened in the Bible, right? So she goes, sleeps at the man's feet. Um, pretty, pretty soon, Boaz figures out, oh, you're Naomi's daughter-in-law. We're related. You know, what's going on with you? You know, anybody hollering at you? Let me holler at you, you know. And, um, and so he knows he has this obligation that, you know, as a kinsman redeemer, He's to keep his family member's name alive by marrying her and having children with her and raising a family in the name of her widowed husband, right? He said, I got, I got, you know, got to do this right. So he goes to the city gates where the elders are. It's basically the courthouse. And there's somebody else who actually has first right of refusal. And that guy was like, oh, I'm interested in the property that, you know, these guys left. Like, oh, there's a wife? No, I, ain't, I don't want no wife, so I ain't. I ain't going to redeem it. And Boaz said, cool, I'll do it. I'll buy the property, and I will marry Ruth. And they do all of that stuff in an official transaction, and he redeems her by becoming her husband. And Ruth ends with a little bit of genealogy. And descending from Ruth and Boaz, a Gentile and an Israelite, is actually our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Who is actually the great kinsman redeemer? All the liberty, all the redemption, all the buyback that is being talked about in this chapter is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, who buys us back from sin, who buys us back from the punishment of sin, who buys us back from the power of sin, who buys us back from slavery to sin. Now, there were three things that had to be true of a kinsman redeemer they had to be related. To the person to be able to redeem them. They had to be willing to redeem them, and they had to be able to pay the price in full. This is why Jesus comes into the world in our humanity, and why Hebrews chapter 2, 11 says he calls us brothers. He was in our flesh that he might be related to us, that he might be like us, that he might be fully human just as we are. And he tells us that he was willing he tells us in John's gospel, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down. And if I lay it down, I can pick it up again. Right? So the sacrifice that Jesus makes for us is a sacrifice that he gladly and willingly made for us to redeem us as our kinsmen. And he had to be able to pay the price in full. And this is why he yells from the cross to tell us die. It is finished. It is done. It is paid. All the penalty for our sin, all the debt for our sin owed to God, Jesus has paid in our place. He has satisfied it all. He has nailed it to the cross, and we bear it no more. No more guilt, no more shame, no more obligation because of sin, no more fear of God's judgment because of sin. Why? Because our kinsman, redeemer, paid it all. And so we are purchased people, beloved. 
We are kept people. We have a kinsman redeemer who has stepped in for us. He said, I got you. I'll pay for you. I'll gather you back, not to your hometown in North Carolina or Philadelphia or the Bronx or Nigeria. I'll make sure you return to that true home, that place that I go to prepare for you in my Father's kingdom. His foundations are unshakable. So I'll pay your debt. I'll bring you home. And I'll give you rest. I'll give you everlasting rest in me. This chapter is shaped by the gospel. Because it points to Jesus Christ. He gives us rest. He returns us home. He redeems us for God forever. Beloved, if Jesus is yours, treasure him. Never tire of him. Never tire of seeing him on every page of the Bible. Never tire of going to him. That's where you'll find rest for your souls. You'll taste it now. But you'll have it to the full on the day of his coming. The day we go home. And that's why, beloved, if you're here and you're not a Christian, we can't think of anything more that we would like you to have than Jesus. He's everything. He's everything. He's everything those who trust in him. Put your faith in him. Enter into his rest. Come back home to God and look forward to eternal life, free from sin and free to enjoy him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you have designed a society for your people that really features rest. We are weary people. Earth is ghetto. People are ratchet. We're ratchet sometimes. We're tired of ourselves sometimes. We, we need your rest. We need your help. And we do confess, Lord, that we are pilgrims and sojourners. We are passing through this world and we pray Help us not to form what feels like a permanent attachment to this temporary home. Attach our hearts to your kingdom and your glory and our eternal home. Grant, O oh Lord, that we should rejoice in this redemption. Lord, indeed, Jubilee is ours every moment. For you have canceled the, red, the, the record of debt against us. You have freed us, O oh Lord, from our slavery to sin. And you have made us your people. We belong to you. You are our God. Help us to reverence you. Help us to honor you in all that we say and do. Help us to reverence and honor you as a church here. And, and give us grace more and more to, to share with each other. That no one would have need. Give us faith to trust you. Faith enough to rest, faith enough to give, faith enough to share the gospel. Do your work in us and through us, we pray, for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.